Welcome to Book Bistro, where book enthusiasts come to chat about the books they love in a warm and supportive environment. episode is airing on Tuesday, June 6th, 2023. Hello, everyone. It's Shannon back with you for another Tuesday morning episode. And today we have an interview with historical romance author Harper St. George. You may remember that Stacy and I interviewed her hmm, in t- like early 2022 for the release of a previous book in this series. And so she came back to chat with me about her latest book. So if you are a fan of historical romance, especially that which is set in the Gilded Age of America, I highly recommend you pay attention to this interview. And of course, after the interview, I have some great new books to share with you. So let's get started. You can find us on Facebook by searching for Book Bistro Podcast. There we have our usual Facebook page where we keep track of our Wednesday reads and also post information about the Friday episodes. We also have a Facebook listener group that you're welcome to join. And if you prefer a different type of listener group, you can contact us and ask about our WhatsApp group. Both groups are pretty small, not super high traffic, and we would love to have you. If you want to get in touch with us off of social media, you can do so by sending an email to thebookbistropodcast at gmail.com. If you're looking for our main hosting page where you can find information on the podcatchers that make Book Bistro available to you, you can find that information in our show notes. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another edition of the Book Bistro podcast. This is Shannon, and today I am delighted to welcome author Harper St. George back to the podcast. Today, we are discussing her upcoming novel, The Duchess Takes a Husband, which will be releasing here in the U.S. on May 23rd. Harper, thank you so much for joining me today. Hi, Shannon. Thank you so much for having me. Can we start with a brief introduction to The Duchess Takes a Husband and kind of how it fits in to the overall world of your um, Gilded Age heiresses series? Uh, very briefly, The Duchess Takes a Husband is about Camille. Um, she made an appearance in the first book in the series, uh, which was The Heiress Gets a Duke. Um, and the whole series is about these dollar princesses, these American from Americans from an industrial family who are sort of being married off to um, the English aristocracy for class basically because they were sort of new money families so that's how they sort of earned their they were called cash for class marriages they had the money the dukes and the earls had the status socially 
So there were a lot of these marriages. And in the very first book, our heiresses first learn about these marriages because their friend Camille is the first one who is sort of forced by her family to marry one of these dukes. And he's about three times her age. So she was not happy with the arrangement. And all through the series, you've seen her sort of struggle in this marriage that she didn't want. So spoiler alert, the Duke dies at some point in the series. So this is her finally getting her happily ever after and learning how to sort of take control of her life and find herself. Those kind of cash for class marriages were a big deal during the Gilded Age, it seems like right kind of as we were turning into, you know, what would be the the 20th century, it seemed like there were quite a few of those that went on um, both in England and in New York itself. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, so after the Civil War, you had this huge, in, excuse me, huge industrial boom in the United States. And you had all of these families who had suddenly not, um, it, maybe they came from modest means or maybe like their grandparents sort of started the factories. But because of railroads and coal and all of the the industrial factories that we were starting to see, even brewing companies, things like that. We've learned how to take it from these mom and pop shops to these big, um, sometimes multinational organizations. Um, so you had these families who suddenly had a lot of money. Um, Wall Street was starting to boom. Oh, yeah. So you had... Um, no regulations, hardly any regulations. So the many these families were, were earning was sort of limitless at the time. But it also created this class difference because you had these families who had been here since, you know, the 1500s in some cases, 1600s, 1700s. So they had generational money. And the Astors were one of these huge families that everybody sort of knows. But it's funny because even they, they earn their money in like the fur trade, you know, and, you know, they were pretty wealthy, but they gained money because they also owned a lot of real estate in New York, which was growing just tremendously at the time. Oh, yeah. Um, so... You know, it's not really anyone was any better than anybody else and how they came about their earnings. It's just the rule of thumb was had you had your money for three generations at the time. And if you had, then you were sort of in society. And if you hadn't, then you were looked down upon. And a lot of times you can kind of understand these families didn't have the the mannered upbringing that you might have had if you'd been in this society for a few generations. You know, you didn't know how to be comfortable in a ballroom necessarily or at a formal banquet or dinner table. So there was a lot of that class difference. So um, interestingly enough, it was easier to overcome that if you were one of the sons of these families because uh, yes. they could overlook maybe if you weren't quite as mannered because you know 
well, he's a man. He's not supposed to know. <laughs> um, so, but you had the money that you were bringing in, so it was okay. But if you were um, a woman marrying into this environment, they liked to keep their sons for the women in that environment, and they didn't like outsiders coming in. So it was very hard, at least at first, to marry into the upper class as a woman. So um, one of the first of these marriages was in the early 1870s. I'm kind of bad with dates, surprisingly. <laughs> I want to uh, say it was 73. History is full of like so many numbers. I feel like it's incredibly it hard to keep track of them all. Don't put me on that, but um, Jenny Jerome was one of the first women to marry into um one of the sons of the aristocracy. And um, her son was Winston Churchill. Oh, so yes. he was from one of these marriages. Um, but she wasn't accepted in society. Her dad was sort of this sportsman, philanderer. Uh, he had a reputation, but he was a Wall Street man. He'd earned a lot of money. So she and her sisters were not necessarily accepted. And at this point in time, Paris was the place to be for Americans because the English aristocracy was also a little bit unaccepting. So Paris is sort of where everybody went. And that's uh, where they, Paris. I know, they bought their gowns and, you know, and she did meet an English aristocrat there. And that's, it was actually a love match, supposedly. They married with... They were engaged within a few days. They married in a couple of months. Winston Churchill was born eight months after the wedding ceremony. Oh. Nine pounds. So, Scandal. Um, it's a very interesting situation. But so she was sort of the first one to open the door. And as that happened over the next few decades, and even up to war, World War One, I, I would say, you had a lot of these mar marriages, and not just English aristocracy, but all of Europe. Um, I believe there were close to 300 of these in total. Wow. And, at, you know, Great Britain was a big place because at the time, the landed gentry were sort of losing the money that they did have because a lot of people in the working class were moving to industrial cities. They were not working on the farms anymore. Um, at that point, it was cheaper to import grain than it was to actually make it there. So the aristocracy was actually looking for this influx of cash. So it just sort of lined up at the right time. And over the course of a few decades there, I, there are different estimates, but it's estimated to be about $1 million these American women brought into the British economy wow. so those marriages were definitely beneficial for both sides I feel like that period is so transformative in our kind of early history and it's one that we don't always learn a lot about I mean I feel like I say that about a lot of history because we here in the U.S. don't learn about history in a way that I think we we need to but we don't we don't know a lot of these things about you know what brought money 
into and out of this country during this time and the ways in which, you know, we did or did not sort of join forces with, you know, some of, of English society to make advantageous matches. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I agree about us not learning the history the way I think we maybe need to, to really understand what caused what. Um, it's funny you say that because my daughter's in middle school now and she's learning history, but it's just a bunch of dates, you know, you don't right. really understand the whole context. And you so don't necessarily I, have the detail that go with all those dates. You just know, okay, on this date, this happened, but right. like, why did it happen? You know, what, um, like what led up to that? Well, it's the stories, right? The stories is what makes it all come together for you. Um, yes. It was a really interesting time. I mean, I feel like I could write, you know, the 1870s, 80s and 90s forever and you just would not run out of material because you had the women's rights movement taking off. Oh, yeah. You had the progressive movement. You had um, workers' rights because you had all of these unregulated industry and people were really being taken into depression going on at the time, which was called oh, yeah. the Great Depression before we had the Great Depression. So it's just so interesting. So what sort of gave you the idea that this was the period in history that you wanted to set your stories? Um, well, I think it's so hard to go back um, and think what really set it off. I did read um, one or two of Joanna Shoup's historical yes. romances. She had that series, uh, Mogul and Magnate with you know, oh, yeah. man on the cover. Um, I'd read that and then I started, well, a friend of mine actually told me she had toured, um, was it a house in Newport or somewhere in New England? Um, and the tour guide there told her the story of Consuelo Vanderbilt. Oh, yes. Um, she was maybe the most famous dollar princess of the era. Um, her mom was Alva Vanderbilt, who was the big sort of nemesis of Caroline Astor, who was the big yes. social matriarch at the time. And Alva wanted to break into um, New York society. But Mrs. Astor did not want her in New York society because she was new money. Um, so they had a feud that sort of went on for a long time. And Alva's uh, best friend married, um, oh gosh, what was he? An Earl, I want to say. Um, no, I think he eventually became a Duke. Um, so I think you know, this was before she'd even gotten pregnant with Consuelo, her best friend, married this guy. And I think she saw the doors that opened. So when Consuelo was born, I think she'd planned it pretty much from her birth that she was going to have her marry a Duke. Oh, uh, yes. Because that's about as high as you can go in British aristocracy, you know, unless you make a prince. Yeah, and um, I don't think that was uh, very, very yeah, possible. Yeah, probably not, not possible. <laughs> 
No. So she, um, Consuelo, was pretty much bred from the beginning to marry a duke. She had, she was probably overeducated for um, what she was able to do with her life. Um, she had language classes. She had etiquette classes. She had art. Like she could, culture. She was very cultured. She could talk about anything, and she was not really given leave to socialize with people around her with the kids around her so she grew up sort of lonely and her mom decided she was going to marry this duke who she did not love of course she was in love with someone else and the duke for his part was also in love with someone else but he had to marry for the money well, yes um so they were forced to marry and um and gosh one of the stories is that consuelo had to wear this apparatus, it was like a belt around her waist with a metal rod up her back and a support under her chin to work she on postures. Somewhere. And she had to wear this for hours a day. Um, and it was all so she could become this duchess one day. So she married him and it was an unhappy marriage, of course, and they eventually divorced. Um, but her mom, it came out later on, had threatened that she would kill herself if Consuelo did not marry this man. Yeah, because so, that's you know. what we should do. We should manipulate people into marrying who we want them to, yes. Because she knew best, right? Mm, um, arguably. <laughs> so yeah. um, that sort of set off, oh my gosh, there are more of these stories. So I just started reading more about the dollar princesses of that time. And I knew I had to write a series about that because um, it's just so fascinating and sad in its own way. Yes. Because this is a time, you know, we think of those marriages happening, maybe even back in the Regency era, but certainly medieval times, you don't really think of those forced marriages going on as recently as, you know, just over a hundred years ago. Right. And I think for a lot of us now, you know, we don't, like, that's a hard thing to fathom. You don't sit here and say, oh, you know, I wonder, like, what if I really had to marry somebody that I didn't want to? I think, you know, in certain cultures, arranged marriages are still a big deal. But for a lot of us, like, that's just beyond sort of the the realm of what we can even imagine, except in in fiction. And, you know, you hear people say, well, I just wouldn't do it. And, you know, obviously I feel that way, too. But you just it's so hard to fathom the pressure that these women and sometimes girls were under to sort of do what they needed to for their family. Right. I don't get the impression that these people had you know, tons of choices that could sort of get them out of this situation if this was something they didn't want to do. Exactly. What what could you do instead? I mean, you could run away and then work in a factory, maybe, you know. Right, maybe. No minimum wage. And, like, and what you know, the you working conditions would not have been good because, as we've discussed, there were really no regulations on labor and the way exactly. that people were treated. Exactly. Um and it's hard to be a social pariah, too. You know, you grew up wanting to please your family for the most part. Um, so 
what can you do? And you do, there is that thought, well, my parents do know best, you know, especially then when you're not inundated with all these other outside messages. Right. That's, that's what, you know, like your parents tell you, you have to do these things. And even if you aren't a hundred percent sure that it's a great idea, um, you are most likely going to do it. Right. So this is Um, the fourth book in your series. Um, Do we continue on after Camille's story or are you kind of turning your attention to something else? Well, Camille's book is the last book and it actually wasn't even planned to be part of the series. The series was about um, the Crenshaw siblings, two sisters and a brother. And I hope to wrap it up then. Um, But as I wrote more and more of Camille in the stories, I was like, oh my gosh, I can't just leave her like this like in this situation (laughs) well I did kill off her husband but even then it's like you know I loved her by that point and readers loved her and people kept reaching out to me are we gonna get Camille's book um so you know it it wasn't enough to just get rid of the guy at some point I'm like I do want to see her have her happily ever after so that's how her book came about and thankfully My editor was very happy with the idea, so um, she got her own book, and as you can imagine, her marriage was not happy, so a lot of her book focuses on her sort of overcoming the emotional and sometimes physical abuse that she had to deal with in her marriage, which it was a really difficult book to write because I was wanting to write a book where she was free and she was going to be out of the town doing her thing but it just wasn't that easy once I started writing her because she did have this trauma that she had to work through absolutely um which I I guess I knew but it takes place gosh how long after her husband dies it's a little over a year I was like oh that's plenty of time she's fine but no it takes (laughs) a lot longer than that once you're actually in the person's head, oh no, that's not long enough to recover from trauma. So a lot of this is her taking back herself. And she was married at 19. So in many ways, she didn't even really know who she was. Right. So we get her to see her decide she wants to be a part of the women's rights. She wants to be a part of making sure women have choices. So they're not forced to marry like she was. And we see her reach out to Jacob, who's also sort of been a side character in the other books. He's the half-brother of the Earl of Lee, who is the hero of the second book, The Devil and the Heiress. And he co-owns Montague Clough with the heroes in those books. And um, so she approaches him because, you know, he's a well-known rank. And he knows what he's doing, so she Uh, approaches him to maybe help her figure out if it's, if there's a reason she hasn't yet experienced, you know, pleasure Mm -hmm. that can be found in the bedroom. And, um, of course, he's not sure this is a good idea, but... (laughs) It probably is not. They do know each other, sort of in a wider friend group he's like this could be awkward later on but um it turns out he needs a fake engagement a fake wife for this business deal because his reputation has preceded him a little too much he needs to show he can settle down 
and be a responsible adult. So he asked her if she can, you know, be his fake fiance. And she says, well, yeah, but you got to do what I want you to do too. <laughs> they come to an arrangement. And what I thought would be, you know, fun hijinks ensue, you know, and actually yes. it is difficult for her to trust someone. And she goes through this process of learning who she is. And he goes through this process of learning, oh gosh, she really has been traumatized. And together they have to figure out how to, you know, overcome what has happened to her. Um, so, you know, I've, I've heard some of the arc readers call it sex lessons, a sort of micro trope that you get in romance. And that sort of applies here, yes, but it's not quite that easy for them. There's a lot of uh, emotional baggage she has to overcome, and they work through that together. Um, One of my so favorite things about a series is watching those characters who were like, side characters kind of come into their own. And I mm -hmm. think with someone like Camille, who we do meet, you know, in the very beginning, like her journey sort of plays out against the backdrops of these other these other stories and so it is like so fitting to finally see her achieve you know the thing that will bring her happiness even though it comes at at a lot of cost to her oh absolutely yeah I agree um and though I do think you could pick up this book not having read the other books in the series and you'll be fine um, I do think you're right. Having seen her journey through the books just makes it a little more satisfying that she finally gets that happily ever after. Right. I think you become sort of invested in who she is as a person, even as you're rooting for, you know, the other couples in the previous books. Mm -hmm. She's always sort of, you know, in like in the shadows kind of, you know, you know what's going on with her you know that she hasn't had you know the best marriage and then you finally get to see her like taking back her own life in a way and finding the things that will bring her happiness and fulfillment right exactly because you know at 19 you don't necessarily know those things and it wasn't something no. she was able to explore in her marriage because you know he controlled everything who she spoke to, her schedule, everything. Um, so I have two more questions for you before we wind down today. Can you tell me what you have read recently that you have fallen in love with and that you want the world to know about? Um, so many. Well, I can tell you one book that recently came out. I got to read it a little early, but it came out in April was um, Anna Maria and the Fox by Liana De La Rosa. Um, it's a similar time period to mine. And I love historicals that can teach me a little history, um, especially history that I didn't really know. And so hers, uh, hers is about um, these three sisters from Mexico who their, their parents send them to London to escape the war going on there between oh. France and Mexico. 
So I thought that was really cool because it just taught me a lot of that. I mean, I knew vaguely what was going on at the time, but it taught me so much more. So I, I have really seen love... that, but I haven't yeah. read it yet. I will have to add it to my TBR pile. And before I let you dash off, can you let listeners know the best place to find you online? Um, sure. Always my website, of course. And my newsletter, that's where I send out, um, like tomorrow, actually, I have a sneak peek going out of my uh, new book. So I'm always sending out like little scenes and oh, yes. background character information, things like that, what I'm working on. Um, and your website and, is? And that's harperstgeorge.com. Um, yep. Sorry. harperstgeorge.com. And then Instagram is usually where I hang out on social media and that's at harper st george and do you describe your instagram photos uh, no is that do you mean like what's in the photo yes no do people do that so that. there has been a, a push lately for increased accessibility for people who either cannot like physically see photos or people who, for whatever reason, have a hard time due to like a neurological disability to interpret what they see in a photo. Oh. And so people will add what's called alt text where they describe what is in the photo so that it'll say something like, you know, image description. This mm -hmm, is a photo mm -hmm. of, you know, two people, blah, blah, blah. And it adds that bit of accessibility so that when people are scrolling through Instagram, um, it's not just a sea of undescribed text. Or I should so say undescribed a, photos with no text. Right, right. Is that a feature, like on Twitter, it has the alt text feature. Does Instagram have that or you just put it in the body of the text? So you can body? do either way. You can create okay. a caption, like you can put it in the caption of your photo. You can put it like in text, you know, below your photo. Instagram does have an alt text feature, although my understanding of it is that it's a little bit harder to find than the one on Twitter. Oh, but okay. if you well, Google, but if you Google, um, you know, creating like adding alt text mm -hmm. on Instagram, um, you should be able to find it. And on Book Bistro, because all of us are visually impaired in one form or another, accessibility is a big deal here. And so it's a thing that I've started asking authors. I don't think I was doing it when you were last here um, when Stacy and I chatted with you, but I can't remember even when I started asking, but I've started to ask people if that's a thing that they do so that if people aren't aware, hopefully we can increase awareness and make social media a little bit more accessible. Well, that's good to know. I, I knew Twitter had something like that, but I did not know that Instagram had that feature at all. Yeah, it's so not thanks for as, letting me know. You're welcome. It's not as um, like apparent on Instagram, mm -hmm. I think. Um, and I don't, I don't understand Instagram really. Like it frustrates me in a lot of ways. So I don't, I don't understand it, but I know that there is a way to create alt text. And I would say Google, um, would tell you, or you can probably find it just by looking at, um, like other, you know, posts that have it in there. You might be able to right. tell okay. like how it got there. 
I will look that up because it's only something that takes an extra minute or so. It's true. It's true. And it makes the whole experience just so much more inclusive for a subsection of the population who has sort of historically been left out of visual media. Yeah. Well, thank you for making me aware of that. I'll look into that for sure. This has been a discussion with author Harper St. George and we were talking about her latest novel. We are just about a week ahead of publication. This is The Duchess Takes a Husband. It is the fourth installment in her Gilded Age Heiresses series, and it will be releasing here in the U.S. on May 23rd. All right, so new books out this week. First of all, we have three books that have been previously mentioned in our most anticipated releases of June episode. And those are two books that Sarah is looking forward to. The first one actually came out on June 5th, so Monday, and that is Forbidden Hearts by Corinne Michaels. And then Sarah is also very excited about the brand new Kristen Higgins, which is called A Little Ray of Sunshine. Christine is looking forward to the new Lisa C, which is historical fiction, and that is Lady Tan's Circle of Women. So now let's move on to some books you haven't heard us talk about before. I'm going to start with some fantasy. One that I'm particularly excited about is the new Alexis Hall. This is called Mortal Follies. It's Mortal Follies, book one. And again, this is by Alexis Hall. And he has written so many fantastic queer romances. Um, My first introduction to him was Rosaline Palmer Takes the Cake, which I've talked about before. I loved A Lady for Duke, um, which is a historical. But Mortal Follies is an urban fantasy with a female main character. And I am super excited for this. Unfortunately, my library hold list is really, really long. So I'm not sure uh, when I will get a copy, but it is definitely one that I am excited to read. Again, this is Mortal Follies, Mortal Follies book one by Alexis Hall. We also have a new Yasmin Gallinorn book out this week. This is Cursed Web. This is part of her Moonshadow Bay series. In fact, it's the ninth book. And again, this is by Yasmin Gallinorn. Um, these are set in a small town in Washington about January Jackson, who is a woman um, who has come to this town to start over. She works for a paranormal investigation agency. She's in love with a werewolf shifter. Um, They're definitely paranormal women's fiction, kind of on the lighter end of some of what um, Miss Gallinorin is known for writing, but still very, very enjoyable and worth your time if you're a fan of this series. This is Cursed Web, Moonshadow Bay, book nine by Yasmin Gallinorin. So we also have some young adult fantasy out this week. Um, We have Ruling Destiny. This is the second book in a series by Alison Knoll um, called Stealing Infinity. So this is young adult fantasy, as I've said. Um, I've never read Alison Knoll. She has at least one other series that I know about and possibly two Um, But if you're looking for something that has that sort of like magical intrigue, 
Um, she's written about the Fae before, you know, lots of self-empowerment through magic. Um, so basically, you know, if YA fantasy is your thing and you enjoy a lot of the, you know, like Holly Black or Sarah J. Moss, people like that, um, you might be a fan of Alison Knoll. So this is the second book, and it is Ruling Destiny, Stealing Infinity, book two by Alison Knoll. We also have A Spark in the Cinders by Jenny Elder Moak. And this is kind of a retelling of the Cinderella fairy tale. And I am a big fan of fairy tale retellings. Um, Brooke is as well. And Stacy has been known to enjoy these a time or two, Amber. So they're, they're pretty popular here on Book Bistro. And I love when they're retold and given sort of a modern twist. Even if the story is still set, you know, in an ancient time, um, I love some of the like modern sensibilities that can be inserted into these retellings. So definitely give this one a look. It is A Spark in the Cinders by Jenny Elder Moak. So moving away from fantasy, there are a couple of just contemporary YA novels that I want to talk about. The first one is Good as Gold by Candace Buford. And I really, really loved her book, Neil. This one is a little bit different. It's centered around a treasure hunt. And sometimes treasure hunt books don't do it for me. But Buford's writing when I read Neil was just utterly captivating. And so I do plan to give this one a try. Um, so once again, this is Good as Gold, and it's by Candace Buford. We also have the follow-up to a book that came out, I want to say, in late 2021. Um, this is Some Shall Break. It's None Shall Sleep, book two, by Ellie Marnie. Now, this is a contemporary mystery slash thriller series. And the first book... Um, I have sitting here, I have not read it yet, but I did read a standalone by Marnie that is like a historical mystery. And that one I thought was quite good. So she's an author that I definitely plan to read more of sometime in the near future. Um, but if you have read None Shall Sleep, then you are probably ready for the sequel. And that is Some Shall Break. It is once again, the sequel to None Shall Sleep and it's by Ellie Marnie. So we kind of have a thing going here with mysteries and thrillers, but I want to change it up a little bit and talk about some books that are not necessarily um, YA thrillers. I'm starting out with a couple of historical mystery thrillers. We have The Last Drop of Hemlock. This is Last Call at the Nightingale by Catherine Shellman. This is the second book in that series. Last Call at the Nightingale is one that I really wanted to read when it first came out. Um, and so I'm super excited that the sequel is here. It is set in 1920s. And so you get all of that 20s era magic that we all love. You know, it's great to read about. It would have kind of sucked to live there with all the like gangsters and stuff but it is very, very fun to read about. And I love it here. So I'm very glad to see that these characters are returning and we get to spend more time in this world. This is Last Drop of Hemlock, Last Call at the Nightingale, book two by Catherine Shellman. 
We then have Marion Lane and the Raven's Revenge, Marion Lane, book three by T.A. Wilberg. And these are kind of cozy historical mysteries. Um, Marion Lane is a woman who's a little bit, you know, ahead of her time, the way we like some of our historical heroines to be, or at least I should say the way I like them to be. Um, not necessarily where it feels like fake, you know, like, oh, a person like this you know, would never have, have existed. I, I don't like that. But I do like when the female characters are able to kind of bump up against some of society's rules and conventions and say, you know, no, this is not how I want to live. And these are the kinds of things that are important to me. And this is what Marion Lane has done throughout um, the, the two books that precede this one. So this one is Marion Lane and the Raven's Revenge, Marion Lane, book three by T.A. Wilberg. So I'm now moving on to some more contemporary set mysteries and thrillers. And I want to talk about All the Sinners Bleed by S.A. Cosby. And Cosby is an author who has become super popular over the past couple of years. I remember when Blacktop Wasteland came out and people were just enthralled by it. Um, he tends to write some very gritty, dark books that really tackle some of the darkest parts of the human condition. The characters exist in a kind of moral gray area that I think helps us all relate to them because no matter who we are and what our station is in life, you know, nobody is all good or all bad all the time. And I love that Cosby is able to kind of bring that home on the page while still writing a super compelling, fast-paced mystery. So this one is All Sinners Bleed by S.A. Cosby. Astrally Altrain is releasing The Whispers. You may remember she wrote The Push um, a few years ago, which was a book about motherhood and the supernatural. Um, it was very, very creepy. And so many people loved it, you know, during the pandemic when we were looking for something new and different and a little edgy. Um, this was the perfect book for so many people. I remember a couple of people telling me that the push is kind of what helped them get out of a reading slump. And so I'm super excited to see what Ashley Altrain has for us here. So this is The Whispers. I'm hoping that it is just as creepy from the title. I'm guessing that it is. So this is The Whispers by Ashley Aldrain. The next book is one that I was thrilled to read an early copy of. This is Girls and Their Horses by Eliza Jane Brazier. Now talk about someone who can write a creepy book. Eliza Jane Brazier's If I Disappear like messed with me on a deep and visceral level. Um, there are some scenes in there that I will never, ever forget. And so I was a little worried when I picked up Girls and Their Horses, um, you know, worried in, in kind of a good way, but like, oh, you know, is this going to be something that I remember for the rest of my life because some of these scenes are so disturbing? And no, this is kind of a soapy thriller in the vein of Leanne Moriarty. So very women's fictiony, um, but with some bite. And it's set 
in an elite riding community and we spend a lot of time in a stable among horses. We get to learn about horse shows and everything that goes into these very, very rich people who you know, basically will stop at nothing to spend time with their horses and win even more money. Um, this was just so good. There are several characters that we rotate between. Um, there's a crime that has happened in, in the beginning of the book, and then we go back in time to kind of see what led up to that. It is just an incredible read. If you get a chance, pick it up as soon as you can. It's Girls and Their Horses by Eliza Jane Brazier. Next up, we have The Good Ones. This is by Polly Stewart. It is a Southern Gothic. So Gothics are very, very cool. I personally like to read gothics in the fall. So I'm probably going to hang on to this one until then. But it deals with small town pressure, female friendships. Um, and I wonder if it's kind of like a like a Gail Godwin book who I really, really like. So we'll see. But this one is The Good Ones. And it's by Polly Stewart. This next book caught my eye. It's My Murder by Katie Williams. And its premise is pretty simple, just in terms of like what it, it tackles. And I'm so curious to see how she pulls this off. So what if the murder that you have to solve is your own? Now, of course, this makes me a little nervous that our main character might be a ghost. Um, we all know that I don't want that to happen. But if it does, you know, okay, I'll I'll bite, I'll deal, we'll see. Um, but I'm, I'm very excited just to kind of see how this, how this is done. Because we always hear about, you know, solving other people's murders. But what if you did somehow have to solve your own? I don't know. So this is My Murder, and it's by Katie Williams. Let's talk about some historical fiction now, because why would we not? So first up, we have Starring Adele Astaire. This is by Eliza Knight, who I've read before, but most of what I've read of hers has dealt with Tudor England. And so I'm super excited to see this. I feel like I'm super excited about a lot of things today, but that is par for the course on a bookity Tuesday, right? Right. This is a fictional novel about Fred Astaire's sister. So I'm wondering if we're going to get like all the magical, you know, dance and like the early Hollywood, the entertainment. Um, I hope so, because books like that are so, so good. So this is one I will definitely be reading just as soon as I can. It is starring Adele Astaire by Eliza Knight. We then have The Paris Daughter by Kristen Harmel. This is an author that I have never read. Never, ever, ever. She's written several books. I know that Stacy really likes her. Um, Christine is also a fan of hers. She does a lot of stuff around World War II. I think she might have a couple of World War I books out as well. Um, this one looks kind of bleak, which, you know, sometimes that happens when we talk about war fiction. Um, so if you're in the mood for something that's a little sad, um, it's definitely going to pull at your heartstrings, then this might be what you're looking for. It's The Paris Daughter by Kristen Harmel. 
We then have Crow Mary by Kathleen Grissom. And this is one that I have been excited for for a long time, even before I knew what it would be. Um, Probably, gosh, maybe 2011, Grissom wrote The Kitchen House. And then a few years after that, she wrote Glory Over Everything, which is kind of a follow-up to The Kitchen House. And both of those dealt with plantations and what happens when you know people are trying to gain their freedom so they were set um before the american civil war now we are stepping away from enslaved people and we are moving on to a look at indigenous people namely crow mary who is someone that i don't know a lot about um but i i want to And I'm hoping this will be one of those books that kind of spurs me into doing more research and learning more about a time period and a culture. So this is Crow Mary, and it's by Kathleen Grissom. Next up is a book about books. This is The Radcliffe Ladies Reading Club by Julia Bryan Thomas. And it looks like it's going to be just one of those really nice, lovely slice of life books. So it's life, drama, female freedom and constraints. It's set in the 1950s. It does seem to involve a book club, which I'm always excited about. Um, And I just, I really like the idea of peeling back the veil, you know, for those of us who don't really know anything about the 50s. You know, I know things like I hear my grandmother talk and I've read things and learned things in school, but I'm pretty interested in just kind of a like slice of life look at what life was like for women in the 1950s. So this is the Radcliffe Ladies Reading Club and it is by Julia Bryan Thomas. All right, so I want to Move on now to some women's fiction and romance. And first up is Watch Us Shine. This is by Marissa De Los Santos, who I really, really like. Natalia likes her a lot as well. I think Stacy read and loved um, Love Walked In. And this one is set in the same universe as Love Walked In. And I think does... Um, have a bit to do with Cordelia, who is the character, the main character in that book. So I am super excited to catch up with Cordy and just to see kind of how things are going for her. I love De Los Santos sort of dual timeline approach that she's been um, doing lately, where we see, you know, our current characters, but then go back into the past for kind of a, a related timeline. And I'm hoping that we get more of that here. So this is Watch Us Shine, and it's by Marissa De Los Santos. I also am very excited to talk about a new Cat Sebastian novel. This is a historical, and it's called We Could Be So Good. Again, it's by Cat Sebastian. It's another book that takes place in the 50s. So I guess if I'm really looking for, you know, kind of a, an idea of what life could be like there, I have some reading to do. Um, this is about two male journalists in the 1950s. One of them is trying to like break into the profession and he ends up getting some help from a coworker. This help 
you know, sparks a friendship and this friendship eventually turns to more. But how do you fall in love when everyone around you seems against you? Kat Sebastian is an author I've read and loved in the past, so I will definitely be picking this up. This is We Could Be So Good, and it's by Kat Sebastian. I also want to tell you about Unfortunately Yours. This is the second book in a series that I have seen titled in two different ways. So I'm not actually sure what it's called. Um, sometimes it's called Secretly Yours. And sometimes it's called a vine mess. So I'm not actually sure. Um, if you look at Goodreads, it says one thing. If you look at Amazon, it says another thing. So I'm very confused. But this is by Tessa Bailey. And Georgina has talked about um, the first book in this series, A Vine Mess. And I know that she is a big fan of Tessa Bailey's small towns and quirky families. This one has to do with a vineyard, which is always very cool. So this is unfortunately yours, secretly yours, or a vine mess, book two by Tessa Bailey. And last up for me today is Same Time Next Summer by Annabelle Monahan. If her name sounds familiar to you, she was interviewed for the podcast when Nora Goes Off Script came out, and this was a contemporary romance with some women's fiction elements. I expect that her latest, same time next summer, will be kind of a, a similar thing where we get the sort of self-discovery that we all love so much in women's fiction but we also get a little bit of that romantic spark, which of course draws in the romance readers. So whether you've read and loved Nora Goes Off Script or this is your first introduction to Annabelle Monaghan, um, definitely give this one a look. It is same time next summer. And once again, it is by Annabelle Monaghan. And that my friends is all I have for you this week. I hope that all of you are having a fantastic start to June, reading lots of great books, enjoying the warmer weather. If you're having it in your part of the world, we definitely are. I hope everyone is staying safe and well, and of course, well-read. If you would like to leave us a rating or a review, you can do that on Apple Podcasts or any other platform that you use to access the show. Not only does it tell us what you think, but it also helps other people find us when they're looking for book-related podcasts. Um, it kind of advances us in the Google algorithm. So I will be back next Tuesday morning with an author interview and, of course, the guide to new releases. And some number of us will be back on Friday with more bookish greatness. Take care, everybody. Mm -hmm.